The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, quit playing with your lucky charms, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 428 with guest Mike Nash, recorded live Tuesday, February 17, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who, due to the recession, sold his entire collection of Nerd Week magazine... Carl Franklin. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin here in New London. And here I am in Vancouver. It's Richard Campbell. And, uh, man, we've been doing this show for so long that every intro sounds the same. <laughs> trying not to. I, that's why we spice it up with the Better Know framework and some emails, just different bits. Just different stuff. Hey, you know, uh, we have an intern this week at uh, Pop Studios. I want to give him a shout-out, Sean Mador. Uh, Sean has been uh, learning all he can about the whole production process and the recording process and editing and publication and all that stuff. Um, a college student on, on spring break. And Sean's done some videos on YouTube. If you want to go check them out, they're kind of funny. It's S-E-A-N, Mador, M-A-D-O-R. Just search for him on YouTube. Good kid. Awesome. Yeah. Welcome, Sean. Yeah. Hey, uh, let's get right into Better Know Framework. As you know, uh, Better Know Framework is this bit where I shine a little flashlight on a little corner of the .NET Framework every show or try to every show anyway, uh, maybe a class, maybe a namespace or an interface, something that you may or may not know about WPF, about the .NET framework, rather. Let me say that again. About the .NET framework. And uh, we've been on a WPF tear lately, a Windows Presentation Foundation tear, because there's just so much there. People are overwhelmed, you know, and uh, 
So uh, today I'm going to talk about system.windows.controls.listbox. And you might think to yourself, well, okay, it's a list box. List boxes are list boxes. But no, this list box is more than a list box. Every list box is an owner draw list box. In other words, you can make this thing look like whatever you want. And to see a really good implementation of the list box, check out the DNR TV that I did with Billy Hollis, which you can find at dnrtv.com. Go to the previous shows link. And uh, it's show number 115. Billy Hollis on Getting Smart with WPF. He actually did an amazing demo with a list box uh, uh, control that looks like a a list of those Post-it notes. You know those 3M Post-it notes? Right. All skewed in different directions. It was very cool. So list box is really based on item control. And uh, you can really make this thing look cool. And, of course, there's some great examples in the documentation just look for system.windows.controls.listbox. Richard. Sir. Email. I got you an email. Let's hear it. Carl and Richard, great show. Hard to imagine my bicycle commute to work without it. I had to send a quick email because I thought that several previous shows, such as show number 391, Bill Wagner on Advanced C Sharp, gave the impression that F Sharp was a pure functional language. I caught the F-sharp bug earlier this year and spend my free time working through the first 10 Euler problems in F-sharp. Do you know what a Euler problem is? No. I had not heard of a Euler problem before, so I turned to good old trusty, insert search engine here. (laughs) Thank you. Go to projecteuler.net, and Euler spelled E-U-L-E-R dot net. Cool. This is I didn't know about this just till I, I searched this because of Charles's email. So Project Euler is a bunch of challenging mathematical slash computer problems. And there's a ton of them. But huh. let me just flip to the problems page here. Yeah, what makes uh, it a Euler problem? Well, it, and it, Euler is a mathematician and these guys are just these are good math problems. I guess they're the sort of things and like Charles is doing for trying out solving with different languages, but also just working your mind. So, like, problem number one is add all of the natural numbers below 1,000 that are multiples of three or five. Oh, cool. Right? Like, for it's funny. As a programmer, it's just not a big deal to think through that problem. Right? No, like, I've already just, thought through it. <laughs> of course, right? Or find the sum of all even-valued terms in the Fibonacci sequence, which do not exceed four million. Nice. Right, and it's just a series of problems like this. But I realize this is great training Excellent. for anyone learning to program, just to think through problems. Yeah, but it's you know Charles' angle on this of hey, you know, I took on a new language, so I figured I'd try out the Euler problems. I'm gonna see how I could solve them. And let me continue his, his email here. For me, it was a great introduction to a language that felt fairly foreign at first, but it was not until I picked up Expert F Sharp by Don Syme. Adam Granzich, and Antonio Cisterino that I really started to understand the full scope of the language and one of its key features for the real-world use, the ability to construct and use object-oriented objects and interfaces and mutable state. Wow. From the Microsoft F-Sharp research page, F-Sharp is a scripted-slash-functional-slash-imperative-slash-object-oriented programming language. I would not try to convince you that it is the right choice for every layer of your line of business application, but the blended set of programming paradigms represents a powerful and compelling idea that certainly seems capable of the task. Thanks, Charles Miles from Tucson, Arizona. Charles, 
I totally agree. Mm. F-sharp is not a pure functional language because it does reference objects. It's, that's obvious. And the reality is any language we're going to stick into the CLR has to work and play well with the object world. There's no way to get away from it. That's right. Uh, and I remember talking to Ted about Ted Dewart about a similar set of topics. He said, yeah, if you really want to get crazy on functional, go Haskell. Right. And I don't think we're going to see an ah Haskell sharp anytime soon. <laughs> you know what really occurred to me as you were as you were talking about those problems is that math problems and programming problems like that are a great escape. You know, you know, some people think math is like a big pain and it's a, uh, it hurts to think about and all this stuff. But I had a, a math teacher in college. She was this little short little nun. <laughs> she said, I would rather, I can't, I'll never forget this. She said, I would rather sit down with some cookies and milk and a book of math problems than watch television. Nice. I'm like, yeah, that's pretty awesome. You know, you know, the people who are really uh, good at it really just have learned to escape into that world because it's so abstract and it's so cool and it just tickles your brain. Good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, great fun. I, I just see some potential here with this Project Euler thing. Like, we ought to do something with this. Yeah. Yeah, we ought to. <laughs> I, we could have some good fun. There, there's a contest to be had here somewhere, and I'm just going to let that noodle around in my brain for a while. Yeah, I'm thinking the same thing. We'll have to cogitate on that for a little bit. You bet. And if you've got any questions, concerns, ideas for shows, criticism, you name it, send us an email, .netrocks at franklins.net. Well, Richard, I'm really excited about today's guest, uh, Mike Nash from Microsoft. He's the corporate VP for Windows Platform Strategy. And uh, welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. So so tell me exactly what the corporate VP for Windows Platform Strategy does when he wakes up in the morning. No, it's a great question. So I sit in a Windows business group. And just to give you a little bit of context, there's three uh, senior leaders for Windows at Microsoft. There's Stephen Sanofsky, who's responsible for the Windows Experience, the Windows Live Experience team, and John Devon, of course, who runs the core operating systems division that builds sort of the core infrastructure for the Windows platform, and then Bill Vecti, who is the senior VP responsible for the Windows Business Group, who's responsible for product marketing and product management for Windows and for Windows Live. And, of course, my team within Bill's organization is the Windows Platform Strategy Team. So really focusing on the long-term strategy for the business of Windows, pricing, licensing, and how offers for Windows are put together. My team's responsible for the work that we do with the ecosystem to evangelize Windows to both hardware and software developers and making sure we've got great um, opportunities for our partners, because certainly Windows is all about uh, the business for our partners. Number three, my team is responsible for the product marketing and product management for Internet Explorer. And finally, a lot of the work we're doing right now is we're realizing just how, how we can better serve um, our customers in emerging markets. My team spends a lot of time looking at new opportunities for Windows and emerging markets. We're, frankly, right now, with a lot of focus on the China market. Now, now that's interesting. And forgive me for being glib, but don't you just usually sell one copy of software to China? <laughs> you know, one of the things that we found is that in China, people are um, it's probably our most enthusiastic uh, customer base. And really, the thing we want to understand is ways we can encourage them to actually pay for more than uh, a small number of copies. Yeah. Yeah, that's always historically been the, been the problem. Um, so, Internet Explorer, huh? Product management and and marketing for Internet Explorer eight. It's almost a a kind of disconnect there. I mean, Windows is such a broad product, and and IE is such a specific product. 
Well, IE actually, it turns out, is the place where most customers spend their most time on Windows desktops is browsing the web. Right. And uh, we think we have a huge opportunity. We've been pretty successful at making Windows a great client for the web. And if you look back at the, at the, at the investments we've made, uh, you know, investments in things like TCP IP, which Microsoft led in, you know, in, in, the, in the early and mid-90s, enabled you know, the, a lot of those experiences. And certainly making the web browser integral part of the operating system has been a key strategy for us. I think one of the things that we've been very focused on is how we just keep pushing and pushing to make sure that experience can become better and better. And IE8 is a great example of that. I think it's an understatement. I think the the um, addition of Internet Explorer to Windows 95 was one of the most significant changes in computing and in the in the world. It, it was really, really was a world changing thing. If you think about it. Yeah, I, I, on many levels. I think I think making sure that that experience is just an integral part of, of of how the OS works has been a key thing for our customers. And you know, whatever we can do to make that uh, get better and better, that's a key goal for us. I think I think most people have forgotten how much of a struggle it was to get on the internet in the old days. Trumpet, Winsock, and and just try to get the right software onto your machine to make it happen. Yeah, imagine a world where, you know, step one was go find a TCP IP stack. Oh, I yeah. didn't have to imagine it. I remember it. In fact, I, didn't we interview David Treadwell, the guy who wrote the Trumpet Winsock? That's right. Well, you wrote the Winsock for, for, uh, for Windows, yeah. For Windows. Winsock DLL. Well, and I, if I remember correctly, uh, Mike, you were also involved with Windows 2000, which is, uh, for me, the sort of seminal version of Windows that really made TCP IP a first-class citizen. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I, I go back even further. I've actually been working on Windows for the better part of 18 years. Wow. And I remember, I remember back when we were working on Land Manager, which was the server OS that came oh, before yeah. Windows NT, if you can think that far back. Ah, and man. I remember, I remember a, very, a very tough set of decisions where we, we decided to put TCP IP as a, if you will, default protocol versus an add-on yeah. you know, back in late 1991. That's right. And everybody, oh, should we really do that? Yeah, ooh. <laughs> we, we were really worried about the revenue we might be foregoing for not selling the TCP/IP ad pack. Well, I remember Net. <laughs> I remember Net was just so much easier to deal with, but of course was so much more chatty as a protocol. But you you didn't have to you didn't have to plug in numbers, and I, you know that was that was that's always been a tough thing. I don't even know how people are going to deal with IP6. You know, when faced with that, the whole question, "What's your IP address?" just isn't going to come up in conversation. Yeah, but again, I think you look at a lot of those investments Microsoft made early on that then paid off in the future. So TCP IP back in 1991, where nobody involved in that, except for maybe Jay Allard, could have envisioned the Internet in terms of where it was going to go. And I'd say even Jay probably didn't have the sense of the scope we have today. Similarly, IPv6 is now enabling a lot of very cool things. And Windows 7 is a feature called Direct Access. And it's because of the work we've done in, in, in longer-term investments that you know maybe people didn't t- totally understand in the Windows Vista timeframe. In Windows 7, there's some really cool scenarios that are being enabled by those early foundational investments. So IE8, um, you you were about to say something when I mentioned the the product manager. Is you're a product manager, or what was the term that you used? Well, actually, so at Microsoft in the Windows Group, we have you know two core functions: product marketing, which really focuses on the outbound work to go explain our technology to customers and make sure that they understand um, the opportunities there, and product management, which is really a little bit earlier on that 
in, in the process that folks may not know as much about. And really thinking there about sort of what's the business opportunity, what are the investments you want to make, um, how should these technologies be offered, how do we work with the ecosystem. So the cool thing, I think, is, is, is that we've done in the organization over the last few years is to be very precise about, you know, having a, a well-defined team focusing on the product management who, who has a chance to think much more long-term and then making sure we have a very clear team defined, focused on product marketing is, is really focusing much more on the near-term execution. And having those things separate but related has been really a good call, I think, in our approach because it gives us a chance to think about you know, both sides of, of, of the equation and lets people focus on doing their job. So IE8 has been out in beta now for, for a while. Um, what's your, what is the, the coolest thing that, about IE8 for developers specifically? I have to say, one of the key things that we think is important about IE8 and Internet Explorer in general is the ability to deliver new experiences to customers. And ideally, for us, what's really cool is when those experiences really show off the best of Windows. You know, from a developer perspective, I think you know, there's a number of different areas we've invested in. And I think you know, the three that I think are probably the most compelling in terms of helping a developer build what I'll call sticky experiences um, our number one, the work we've done to enable a new, a new experience on a web page called an accelerator. One of the things that we noticed in, in the research we did around how customers use previous versions of IE is a lot of times people spend cutting and pasting between web pages. Yes. So we've all done this where you're about to go meet somebody for dinner and you go do a search on the web and you find the name of a restaurant. You want to get more information about it or maybe look up the address. So you hover over and you and you copy the text from the results page with the address, and you paste it into another search tool to go find the address. Well, in Windows 7, but also down level with, with Internet Explorer 8, um, we have this thing called an accelerator. So I can, write, I can highlight some text and right-click on it and use an accelerator essentially to do what I would have pasted into that page. So um, you know, one of the ones we, we have an accelerator for is mapping with live maps. Uh, doing a search with Windows Live Search. Um, there's there's a new website that everyone's very into called Intertonement. You've probably heard about that. Now there's an accelerator for Intertonement, so I can do a right click and I can go off and find, you know, the the entertainment oriented information around whatever content I want to search on. So accelerators are very cool. Tell us about Intertonement. I haven't heard about that. It's a, it's a very cool website where you can basically do a search and it'll find sort of the entertainment industry-related web, web, web content associated with the content that you're looking for. Wow. I'm probably a bad example personally, but if I do a search on, on an actor, I can find you know, the information about that actor through entertainment. The other cool thing we've invested in is something called um, web slices. And a web slice is the, it, it makes it very easy for you to find the information that you want to find used on a regular basis. So, for example... Uh, one of the things I decide every night is which way I'm going to go home from work. Am I going to take the 520, which is a, a, a very popular highway here, here in Redmond, home, or am I going to take back roads? And we have a web slice that automatically keeps uh, up in the, in the top part of your browser will store the um, little slice of that web page. So I can just hover over that and see an up-to-the-moment uh, update on the traffic flow in Seattle. eBay has built a web slice. Using that web slice on eBay, I can watch the auctions that I'm participating in. It gives me that little bit of a competitive advantage as a user as I'm, as I'm participating in that auction. But for a website owner, 
the opportunity to have that kind of content very easy to access from from the browser without having to go type in a URL or, or open a web page, having it always at the ready for me makes m- me more likely to go back to that web page. So it's both good for the end user and, of course, good for the site developer. And the third feature that, that, that I find kind of cool about this is about IE8, it's something called visual search. And one of the things that we've done is made it very easy for customers to um, find the information they want to use on the web very quickly. I personally install three or four um, visual search providers in my IE8 uh, setup. I, I set up Live Search. I use the New York Times search provider. I use the Amazon.com search provider. And I use the Wikipedia search provider. So when I type in some text in, in the upper right-hand corner in, in, in the search menu, I can switch between, between search providers in real time. And rather than opening up a new window for search, Visual Search opens up a, a small window under the search box that shows me the results that are appropriate for the kind of thing that I'm trying to do. So if I'm researching a new topic, I might want to study it and look for results in Wikipedia. If I want to learn much more about it, I might, I might go to Amazon.com to buy the book. But the ability to, to, to have that kind of rich content right in the search window that I can dynamically choose my provider really makes, again, addresses one of the key issues that I have as an end user, which was I was always copying and pasting things around, and I don't have to do that anymore. As a site owner, whether I'm Amazon.com or Wikipedia, my ability to use that experience to drive more traffic to my site is going to be very compelling. So, again, the opportunity for a developer to both drive more business and drive a better customer experience, that's a good day no matter where you live in. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. You probably know that about 50% of the code in most enterprise applications is dedicated to data access, and about 90% of the bugs and performance bottlenecks come from this code, too. That's why developers rely on Object Relational Mapping Tools, or ORM for short, like the Telerik Open Access ORM. It can help you build a persistent data layer in no time, and squeeze out every bit of performance possible. Do you prefer to start from your database tables or from your classes? No problem. Telerik Open Access supports both forward and reverse mapping for six databases. Of course, you can enjoy link support, full Visual Studio integration, and advanced caching. With very little help from you, Telerik Open Access can quickly generate code as good as yours, minus the bugs. Tempted? Curious? Check it out today and download the free Open Access Express Edition at www.telerik.com. So just to, to clarify the difference between accelerators and, and, and web slices, accelerators generally show up as sort of the right click on a page to sort of mash up wherever you are to another page. Is that a, is that a good description of an accelerator? That's a good, that's a good description. But th- uh, the other way I could, I could talk about it, sort of as the name implies, um, an accelerator is a cuts out a number of the cut-and-paste steps you would have to, to, to get the content you wanted to end up with anyhow. Right, and, and I just like the fact that it's on the right-click, because that's where you would be going to copy anyway. You just skip the copy step and go directly to the accelerator step. Exactly right. That sounds pretty And then pretty the web awesome. slice is really anchored around that, that right-hand uh, uh, text box for searching, where you could just do a lot, you could do a lot more intimate searching. Actually, the web the web slice shows up usually up up at the top, right right below the address bar. Right, you'll see it right there, like you would see a favorite. Oh, okay. 
The other cool thing about accelerators is that when you highlight text, even without having to right-click, a little blue um, arrow will show up. It will automatically, you can click right on that in the browser. So for a lot of customers that aren't used to right-clicking, their ability to access an accelerator without having to learn a new gesture with their mouse is automatically right right in in their fingertips. Is there anybody out there that doesn't right-click? You know, I think there's, I think in the developer community, there's probably not a lot of people who don't right-click, but in yeah. the mom, dad, and cousin community, there's a lot of people that don't right-click. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to remember that. At least amongst my mom, dad, and cousins. You're forgetting Mac users. I wasn't even considering the Mac user, but you're right. No, no, it's a joke. <laughs> We're talking to the VP at Microsoft. they got to throw that in. <laughs> uh you, you know, there's a feature of IE8 that for me is a guy who scales ASP.NET a lot, I, I think is a big deal, which is this whole, now we're maintaining six connections per per web server, so we're downloading stuff more efficiently, and also the decoupling of the parser from the downloader, so we no longer have that sort of JavaScript blocker. But that's, those are very specific details that I care about in IE8. Actually, as you mentioned that, one of the other things that we that we spent a lot of time investing in with IE8 is the developer tools. Uh, in IE8. So rather than having to download a separate set of capabilities, IE8 has debugging tools built right into it that makes it very easy for web developers to debug and, 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 and check their code out using Internet Explorer 8. Have you tried that out? I We have definitely been testing sites and, and sort of our behaviors with IE8, but it's... Uh... You know, we're still, it's still a beta, but it's interesting to see what's happening and just how much better, in some cases, IE8 performs for rendering pages. Oh, yeah. A lot of work was spent in the rendering engine to improve, improve performance. And frankly, one of the things that I don't, I don't usually talk about first, but it's certainly worth talking about, is a tremendous amount of investment we've made relative to uh, standards. And, you know, we know that standards are important. We know that a lot of our... Um, a lot of developers that build for Windows are, or build for Internet Explorer tend to build their site multiple times, once for each browser. Right. And we strongly, we strongly believe that to the extent that people are writing the standards modes, the ability to write your, web, write your website once and run it on multiple browsers will be improved. We, we've made a, a ton of investment in supporting CSS and, and in addition, make sure that you know, in addition to passing the standards tests that exist today, to the extent that a lot of the specification of the standards were documented, but, but for which the test didn't exist, we spent a tremendous amount of money building those tests and then donating them back to the community so that we could have, um, you know, a great ability for all, all browser vendors to make sure their site, their, their browsers are, are doing the standards properly. The IE8 team had a great set of blog posts about how they were really trying to help the tests get better. Uh, going through that process because they, 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 I think they quickly hit the wall on what the ACID two tests were actually doing. Yeah, again, compared to where things were, you know, there was there, there was the dream of standards, but the reality was somewhat limited based on how much investment anyone had made in things like ACID two. So one of the key things that we felt was important was as we embraced this thing to help move the bar forward, and you know, creating the tests and donating them back and. You know, making them very much available for um, feedback so we can make sure we're doing the right thing by the industry was key there. You mentioned the IE blog, and I think, you know, one of the, one of the resources that I think is just phenomenal that, that team has done is to make sure that we're just being very, very um, open about both what we're doing so there's no ambiguity, but also the reason behind those things. 
Um, I think you know it's one thing to know what we're doing, which we can always do better at. Absolutely. The fact that we're being really clear on the why is, is, is I think, really world-class amongst that team. Well, I do think that you know the new Microsoft is a gives us a lot more visibility into how you're getting to where you're going, which has you know definitely been something we've been a part of to some degree. No, I, I very much agree. I, I, it's funny. I think there's a lot of times where I think people sort of wonder what Microsoft's up to, and there's I think sometimes sometimes a mindset that well we must have had you know some funny intent, and I think we always do better by explaining exactly what our intent was. Sure. So you have standards that uh, that you're adhering to, and I wonder, is that the reason for that we actually need a compatibility mode button on IE8? Because is it because that IE8 is adhering uh, more to standards? That's exactly right. IE8 will actually run in two modes. It will run in so-called compatibility mode, where it tries to essentially run the way IE7 would have run, or it can run in standards mode. We decided... W- that as we ship IE8, that for internet sites that we would run in, in the internet zone, run in run in um, standards mode. Now, if a website is not yet running in standards mode, um, all it needs to do is to put a, a meta tag at the beginning of the page that essentially says, "Hey, I'm still running an IE7. Please render me as if I was an IE7 website," and Internet Explorer will do that automatically. There's also a compatibility view button so that if things don't look quite right on the page, you can press the compatibility view button, which is just to the right of the address bar, and Windows will, will kick back into that Windows 7 emulation mode. So this means that IE8 is sort of the, the, the first unforgiving browser. You know, uh, Microsoft browsers have always been very forgiving with, with relationship to how HTML is formed and... Uh, and all of that stuff, you know, if you don't have closing table tags, it, it doesn't matter. You know, the, it'll render it anyway. So, is this really the first one where? Well, I think the key thing here is to is, is let the user choose because if the user sees a web page doesn't look right, they can put the, they can put the browser into compatibility view. At the same time, you know, we also have a list of applic- of sites on the compatibility view list, and we we sort of. We learn about those sites from our telemetry, and if we see a lot of sites, a site where a lot of users are pressing the CV button, we know that that site probably is still running and needs to to run in IE7 mode. So we'll put it on this list, and that list will um, tell the browser, oh, this is a website that we know needs to run in compatibility mode, and we'll watch watch the site. Over time, if the site becomes more standards-oriented, we can take it off the CV list. Interesting. So you, I mean, I now see, I've heard three ways moving to IE8 that we can keep our sites running. You can add the meta tags and just say, keep my page, keep running my pages if I your IE7. The, the user themselves can fire compatibility mode and you've got your own list of, of sites that need to be compatible. Yeah. There's probably technically a fourth and a fifth, if I may. Um, if a user wants to say, Hey, I always want to use my browser in compatibility mode for all sites, the user can set that. And in addition, if a network administrator wants to change the mode of the browser, they can use using group policy to decide whatever they want because it's theirs. And remember, the theme here, it's very consistent with the Windows 7 theme of the user owns the computer, the user should be in control. Right. That's a good philosophy. So we have drilled into some of the, the features of IE8, but is there, as you know, as a the, the 60,000-foot view, is there an overarching philosophy of IE8 of what you plan to achieve with it? Yeah, it's a great question. I think 
you know, at, at a high level, you know, as I said before, one of the things that's really important as we, as we look about the importance of Internet Explorer in the context of Windows is that people spend about a huge percentage of their time browsing the web from their desktop. And whether it's at work or at home, browsing the web is a very important task that people spend a lot of time on. What's interesting is as we, as we went off and looked at the data, and we have, I think, one of the, some, if you ask me my favorite feature of Windows today, it's the telemetry. In a very, in a very um, respectful way that, that, that is respectful of people's privacy, we have you know, people opting in to share feedback in an anonymous way about how they use their computer. And it's, it's absolutely true for Windows and, and, and no less true for Internet Explorer. And we know is that about 80% of the time people are navigating to previously visited websites. We know that 19 out of, the, out of 20 top web actions are navigation-based. So the question is, you know, what are we doing to make sure that we can improve that experience? And I think based on that data, what we learned is it kind of comes down to the basics, making sure we've got uh, a browser that makes the real web real for the world means that your experience needs to be faster, it needs to be easier, and, and frankly, security comes up a lot. So from a, from a browser perspective, Internet Explorer 8, I sort of think about in three big areas. Obviously, this whole notion of built for the real web and being very pragmatic, but number one, making sure that we can be faster, which is not just about how fast do you run the, the, the JavaScript benchmark, Right. But what are we doing to make sure we can get you to get you to where you want to go more quickly? So fewer clicks with accelerators, making sure that we can we can load pages quicker, we can launch more quickly, and a lot of work done to compare how IE eight performance was versus IE seven. Making sure that we have activities that are in context, like finding maps and doing search and accessing email. You know, I just wanted to clarify a term you used, which is telemetry, and maybe some yep. people don't really understand that. That just means information that's coming out, meta information that's coming back. Like, a, like I only know about that word because my ex-wife used to work on a telemetry unit where they monitor heart patients, right? So they're, they're getting uh, lots of data coming back in and looking at it. No, it's exactly right. And the, the analog to medicine is, is pretty analogous. We want to basically understand not just what's the user doing when things go bad, but also what's the user doing in their normal day-to-day life. And I actually, it's funny that you mentioned that. I used to work uh, for a company years ago that, um, that built these things called halter systems that watched how patients' heart, heart uh, patterns existed during the course of their day. There was a lot of data we had about what happened when people were either at the doctor's office or lying in a hospital bed, but the, cool, the company I worked for actually built systems that, custom, that, that their, the patients could wear as they were walking around doing their day. And through that, we could help their physician understand how their heart was performing during different tasks during the day, and they could then correlate their journal with the information that the, halt, that, that, that the halter system had. And our telemetry approach is it's pretty analogous. We want to understand not just, okay, let's analyze the crash results or what happened when, you know, this application didn't work properly, which is sort of where our telemetry began. And now we're actually able to watch and say, okay, here's how customers are using our, our software in the normal course of events. And if we're seeing, you know, a bunch of customers all struggling with the same problem or a bunch of customers all liking one experience, we know we can learn from the positive experience to help improve situations where the experience may not have been as good. And we use that to help both focus on change, making positive changes in our software products, 
but also helps us to know where we want to invest in future versions of our products as well. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to have that telemetry approach to it where it's very much just empirical data, not folks complaining about things or reporting bugs, but just how do they behave routinely? No, it's true. Because I think one of the things we learned in, the early, in our early experience with Windows Vista, remember, with Windows Vista, we made a bunch of changes in the architecture of the operating system in the name of security, in the name of reliability. And we know that a lot of those things that we are absolutely convinced were the right thing to do long-term caused some short-term issues relative to compatibility of devices and applications. And as you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I deploy the industry around addressing those compatibility issues, you, know, you could listen to who's screaming the loudest, which is yeah. an approach. But instead, you can use the telemetry to help us understand, wow, you know, this video card is used by a lot of people and it was causing some problems. We can go off and address that issue. We had a piece of software that we saw, this is a couple years ago, that was causing a third-party software that was causing a lot of system issues. And we actually not only were able to find out what the issue was, but what version was happening. We realized that there was actually one website that was distributing the wrong version of the software. Wow. And, and because of the telemetry and our ability to understand, okay, it was this version that was causing the problems, our ability to go work with the website that was distributing, you know, n- not by, not on purpose, but was, was, was inadvertently distributing the wrong version, by getting them to go to ship the right version, we solved that problem. And, wow, everybody gets happier. So it's, it's a tool that we were very respectful of because we want to make sure that we're using it in a way that is appropriate and in a way that helps um, our customers to be safer. We want to make sure we're never, as we're collecting this data, we're never collecting any personally identifiable information because we don't want to have that. But the trust that the customers have in Microsoft and our ability to um, use that data to help improve the overall experience has actually been quite effective. Okay, well, that makes sense. The second big area, you know, beyond just being faster is being easier and making sure that we can help, help um, users find what they want more easily. So one of the big investments here is the smart address bar to ease navigation. We know that a lot of times, as I mentioned a minute ago, people want to go back to a site they've been in the past. So in the smart address bar, if you begin typing in FAC, it'll note, oh, yeah, Facebook, that's in your history, that's in your history uh, folder. And it'll actually try to bring you back to the pages, pages that you've been to in the past. One of the things for me uh, that, I, that I find is that a lot of times I will do something that opens up a new tab. I have way too many things open at the same time. But in Windows, sorry, in Internet Explorer 8, we have something called tab grouping, so that if I open up a tab, one tab from another tab, it'll actually color code the tab, so I can actually see that these two tabs are very related. And one of the things that I think is kind of cool about that also is I tend to, because I have so many things open, I sometimes get frustrated and start closing things. And I close a web tab, and I'm like, oh, I wish I hadn't closed that. Well, if you open up a new, a, a new tab, you can automatically as you open that new tab, reopen tabs that were recently closed. Think of that kind of, you know, I don't know if you're, if you're a keyboard person, but, you know, the Control-Z, the edit-undo feature. Yeah, the undo. Oh, yeah. I live by yeah. it. Well, think about, think about our, new, our, our new tab feature is, in some sense, undo for the web. Close the web session you didn't mean to close, don't worry. When you open up the next one, it'll let you put it back the way it was. Close the tab you didn't mean to close, don't worry. When you open up a new tab, it'll let you open up a tab you just closed. So, the ability to to have that kind of undo for the web, in my mind, just again 
saves a whole bunch of clicks, especially as I'm going back to places that I've been in the past. It's, that's very much a lowering frustration thing. Oh, I closed the wrong tab. Oh, I could undo it. But think about how much time you spend trying to remember where you were before. Yeah. How many of those capabilities, for, for people like us that maybe know the web, know our browser really well, it's easy for us to go back and open up the history folder. It's not something my mom's doing on a, on a daily basis. So the idea is to, <laughs> for, for you and I to, to reduce the number of clicks, but for my mom to make sure that the process of finding that thing is just much more discoverable. All right. So you're sort of describing the current history of the session is right there on a blank tab. Exactly. In fact, it's more than the session because if I exit IE and I, and I go back into it, lastly, if I want to bring things back. That's cool. Do you, as part of the whole telemetry thing, did you did you find folks using favorites well, or am I the only one? Well, I think people people do use favorites. I think in some sense, what they want is they want to go back to the places that they were. Right. So having things like accelerator and websites make that easier. Frankly, the address bar that can actually look at places you go to very often and, and making those easy to find is pretty trick as well. I think it's easier to just type in, you know, the, the beginnings of where you want to go and have it notice from your history where, where that was rather than having to open a window and navigate through a hierarchy to find a site. I mean, we're so used to just typing in and going, right? People, there's people, you know, people come in all shapes and sizes. So I think sometimes there are people that will want to do it one way, people that want to do it the other way. The key thing is to make sure that no matter which one of those groups you're in, uh, that it works for you. I, I have to say, I, I find that for me, it depends, depends on whether I'm, I'm at work or I'm at home. At work, there's a bunch of sites that I go to, not that frequently, but when I need them, I need them. You know, and, and some of them are, uh, are more seasonal, like the, the website that we use for business planning. I want to get to during certain parts of the year, but I don't go there every day. But I can never remember the URL. So those I keep in my favorites. When I'm browsing stuff at home, trying to figure out, you know, um, you know, what electronic product to go to go buy. I'm looking at a number of different things. The combination of the address bar for me to go back and have the history, but also visual search, so I can actually go compare things from different providers and read about things that you know in various different contexts. For me, that's super hot. Sure. You know, I, I must have had IE8 installed for a month before I realized that if you click the drop down on the address bar, it's way smart. Like it's got oh, your, yeah. your history block, your most popular favorites, just a lot of intelligent information about how you use the browser. Exactly. And then I think to that, to that point, the third area is about security. And I think overall, there's a couple points I'd make there. First is from, from a core security perspective, there's been a lot of conversations about, you know, how secure is Internet Explorer? You know, we know that for sure we have many fewer vulnerabilities than the other browsers that are out there, yet we seem to get more of the press, which is, I guess, part of being Microsoft. But I think it's important that people really sort of embrace the numbers and where we are. We've also done a number of things to make sure that we can improve the core security. So for things like you know, built-in protection against scripting and phishing attacks is, is a key part of, of, of what's happening uh, in, in IE8, making sure we've got this new technology called in-private browser and filtering that gives users user more control over, over where their information is going and how their history is captured. And then, frankly, a lot of work is being done to identify potentially malicious software and give customers uh, more information about what, reputa- what, what, what content may be on a site as a function of its reputation. Right. So being able to look very holistically as to sort of what are we seeing from this domain 
And you know, if, if it's inherently a troublesome domain, giving giving the the, the customer um, that kind of clue about what's happening. And of course, from a reliability perspective, things like tab isolation. You know, we want to make sure that websites can't hurt the browser, but it happens. Uh, it happens on all browsers, and we try to make it happen as infrequently as possible on our browser. But making sure that when one tab fails, the browser session is resilient is a key aspect of that. So architecturally, with IE8, we've, we've really separated one tab from another. So there's the, the risk of one tab bringing down the whole browser uh, is pretty unlikely. You know, the, in, now that you mention it, I haven't heard of any major, like, worms or or nasty uh, kind of problems like cross-site scripting was a problem or or any of those things pretty much since XP Service Pack 2. Have there been any? I haven't even – I just don't even hear about that anymore. There, there, have been, there are always issues. I, our, our job is to make sure that when those issues come up that we're both improving the product but also working with the ecosystem to make sure we can minimize the impact of those. I think, um, you know – we always want to make sure we're being diligent about that. And I think, you know, one of the key things, and you guys probably know I used to work on security. Sure. And a little bit, a little bit, the way, the way you make sure that you're secure is that you're very proactive understanding what's going on and, and, and driving to stay ahead of the issues. And it's, it, it's, it's certainly a, um, an ever-escalating, always working, on, always working on the issue to make sure that we're, we're, we're improving experience well, certainly seems like it's working yeah well the like it's like the era of the code red worm is dead yeah that's i guess that's what i'm trying to say Man, i hate to even say that out loud maybe i'll knock on some wood yeah i whatever i i i don't say things like that because i don't have enough wood but i think, <laughs> you think I, I, again i think as soon as as soon as you ever you want to make sure that you're being diligent and we we we, we, we we've learned a lot there's some basic things that you know, we're easy to address back in 2002 when I first started working on the issue. Uh, and I think over year, over the years, it's a combination of the products that we build and making sure that we're improving their security. It's making sure we're doing a good job with customers to make sure they're understanding how to be safer and more secure. And then making sure we're doing the right things with the industry, both in terms of other software manufacturers, uh, hardware manufacturers, and frankly, law enforcement to make sure that we're looking holistically at the issue. It's never sure. one thing, but it is really all about making sure that we have a deep understanding of both the foundational issues and the emerging threats to make sure that we're being active about that. I think it, it is a, certainly a benefit that Microsoft brings to the table, which is that we, you know, we have really thought about this from both the customer perspective and from the bad guy perspective and try to make sure that we're understanding how we mitigate the bad guy to improve the, the the experience of the end user. I think the biggest battle you've got to have from a browser's perspective is trying to help the user resist the social engineering elements of these exploits. Oh, yeah. Like I thought one of the coolest things, and it really, this really happened at IE7, but it, of course it continued at IE8, was moving up the the SSL lock the sort of visibility onto the address bar so that we could really see I'm really at the PayPal site. The, right. the bar is green. Yep. So, and also the overall making sure that we're doing the right things on, 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 on site certificates as well. Right. And those, those innovations, you know, were really delivered to say, hmm, I mean, it's sort of a classic issue, which is you don't, you have to be careful to not ask the, the user to make a decision of trust without the context to make that decision. Right. Things like the address bar, the, oh, highlighting the domain names. You see this 
long, long URL. What really is the domain name that's happening here? The combination of that in private browsing and in private filtering are really all about making sure that we're giving, the, we're reducing the number of hard decisions that customers have to make because a lot of times they don't have the context to make the decision. Yeah, they don't. They don't know what the correct answer is here. They generally treat those dialogues as, "What do I have to press to make this go away and keep doing what I want to do?" Exactly. Right. <laughs> hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Mike, do you mind shifting gears a little bit, talk a little more on the Windows 7 side of things, because there's some cool stuff happening here. Yeah, I have to say, I love talking about Windows. Love talking about Internet Explorer eight. Love talking about Windows seven as well. So yeah, sure. Let's 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 talk about Windows seven. It's a it's a yeah, sort of exciting time. We're all loving the beta. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, it's a it's a it really seems like we we come out of a pretty tough time with Windows Vista, and you sort of touched this. It rang a bell for me back when we were talking about the telemetry thing. Where didn't I read somewhere that in the dark days of Vista where we were really struggling, it came down to some NVIDIA drivers that were really ruining people's days? And it took that oh, telemetry yes. to find that I, truth? I remember those days. Well, it's interesting. I think when you look at, at, at sort of the early, the early experience with Windows Vista, one of the big challenges was that I think the ecosystem had two, it was two things we made hard for the ecosystem. One was, I think we could have been more explicit about the changes that we made between Windows XP and Windows Vista. And if we had been, it would, I think, would have helped the ecosystem to be more prepared for Windows Vista. And number two was the ship schedule with Windows Vista, where no one was ever quite sure when it was going to be done, made it hard for the ecosystem to know when they were supposed to engage. So in some sense, the first Windows Vista machines that were shipping um, you know, didn't, didn't benefit from the same level of um, Experiences that I think we, that, we, that we have the opportunity to do now with Windows 7. The good news is that in the, in the meantime, uh, the ecosystem really did rally on this. Uh, sure. In part because of the telemetry, in part because of sort of the partnership between Microsoft and the ecosystem, we were able to both improve the core n- number of drivers, but also the number of applications that were compatible with Windows Vista. Um, you know, just as an example, we used to, when I first, when I first started back in Windows, after Windows, so I was on Windows and off on security, and I came back around the time that, um, right after Windows Vista uh, was 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 GA'd in 2007. One of the things that we found was, you know, it's not the number of devices that you support that sort of is the thing that matters the most from a compat perspective. What matters is how many customers have all their devices working, and the idea is to maximize that number. So the way you do that is you understand, okay, where are customers having compatibility issues, and going off and working to make sure that. We're doing a great job with those partners to make sure that we've got good good device coverage. One of the challenges, though, was a lot of the people that had the early, early experiences with Windows Vista had those experiences, and then things got better. But their opinion was kind of formed yeah. before we addressed the issues. Yep. I do feel like we lost the influencer with Vista that they because they were the victims of these what were really driver problems. Well, they were the first ones, right? They were the first ones to have these problems. 
and, and then things got better, and the question was, okay, how do you get them to go look again when they sort of right. form their opinion? So we did this thing, I guess, last summer called the Mojave Experiment. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I don't know if you remember the story, but sure. basically what we did is we brought a bunch of customers and said, hey, what do you think about, about Windows Vista? And on a scale of 1 to 10, you know, based on what they knew, and most of them, by the way, had never used Windows Vista, they rated it like a 4 out of 10. And then we said, okay, let me show you this new product we're working on called Windows Mojave. And we demoed, you know, all the cool things you could do. We demoed the out-of-the-box experience, and we demoed, you know, different, different core things that would, you know, that they would use to form their opinion. And we said, okay, what do you think of this product? And essentially, on a scale of one to ten, they rated it about an eight. Wow. And we said, okay, we got, we, we got, we got, we got to be, we got to come clean. There is no Windows Mojave. The product we have is Windows Vista. And this is how Windows Vista works. This is sort of where it is today. So I think there was a huge issue with closing the, first of all, improving the reality. And a lot of great work was done there. So today, the Windows Vista you can buy from, you know, any number of OEMs is a very different Windows Vista than first shipped back in 2007. Sure. Not because the products changed so much, but because the ecosystem's kind of caught up. And then number two, um, you know, once you change the reality, the next task is to go off and change change that perception. So I think, you know, things like the Mojave experiment and a lot of the other things we're doing to do outreach to both commercial and consumer customers to change that opinion. But you're right. I mean, changing that opinion is a hard thing to do once the, the, the early opinion is formed. Um, can we talk about the Windows 7 SKUs? Sure. Because there's a ton of them. Yeah, there, I think the key thing here is, you know, when we're, when we're trying to build one product that serves over a billion customers, make yeah, sure that we understand that the, the different needs are, are pretty key. The key thing that's different in the Windows 7 timeframe versus Windows Vista, um, and again, it's a learning, is that as you move up the family of SKUs, you don't give things up. Right. So as you move from home premium to professional, professional is a superset of the home premium offering. That's a very big difference. In Windows Vista, you either bought from our consumer line or from our business line. Right. If you bought from our consumer line and you, and you got cool things like DVD playback and, and Media Center in, in Windows Home Premium, but, you, but if you want a domain join, you bought Windows Vista Business. Right. And that was a confusing thing. So in Windows 7, if you want, if you, you, you actually, the, the, the main that will ship in, in, in mature markets is Windows 7 Home Premium. And if you also want domain join, you'll step up to Windows 7 Professional, which includes all the features like Media Center plus domain join. Right. The key thing I would say, though, that I, that I think is simplifying in the Windows 7 timeframe is that really there are two SKUs that we're all about in, in, in developed markets. Windows Home Premium is the SKU for consumers. And Windows Professional is the SKU for businesses, and and that yeah, and and the main difference here is does it join a domain or not? There's other features in Windows Seven Professional that differentiate it, but yeah, uh, one of the key things is the manageability. Yeah, you know, remote desktop connection, the ability to to connect in from the outside is in Professional. Not in right. home premium. Do you guys uh, are you going to offer any more assistance to those people who are upgrading from XP, or are we are are we just requiring 
uh, a clean install of Windows 7 if you have XP? Yeah, so from Windows XP to Windows 7, it will be a clean install. There are tools to help you back up your files and your settings from Windows XP. Okay. But I think the focus was really on making sure we did a great job from Vista to Windows 7. I think one of the things that is absolutely true about the Windows 7 approach is rather than doing sort of an okay job on everything, we're choosing the things we want to do a great job on. And, you know, we didn't want to compromise the Windows Vista to Windows 7 experience by working on other things. Well, you start staying focused on the, the core issue. Uh, I'm a guy who likes uh, working with developers in, in developing countries and so forth. And it, maybe you talk a little bit about the whole emerging markets version of Windows or maybe that whole business in general, because I know you're involved in this. It's, it's an interesting world. Yeah, I think the, the key thing there is that um, we have had a product called Windows Starter Edition in emerging markets for some time, um, and that will continue to be the case in in Windows 7 for those emerging markets. We also know that in developed markets that most of our consumer customers bought Windows Home Premium. So we made the decision that we were only going to offer Windows Home Premium in developed markets. We would, we would no longer offer Windows Home Basic in developed markets. That said, okay. we also know that from a, from a pure affordability perspective, we needed to have a lower price point for um, emerging markets. So in that case, not only do they have Windows Starter Edition, but also Windows Home Premium in, in developed markets. And is this really a hardware issue that they, in developing markets, they just don't spend the money on the hardware as much? And so you've got to sort of tear things down a bit? Well, I think there's a couple of points. The first is, for starter edition, it really is. There are hardware restrictions there. So for a truly inexpensive, even below what you might consider to be a value PC, starter edition is is designed to um, provide a more cost-effective solution for those um, much less expensive pieces of hardware. In the case of Home Basic, it really is about making sure that we can have a less expensive version of Windows that can be put on machines that overall cost less. Yeah, it, it, where things like you know DVD playback and media center aren't as important, right? Is it just they don't have that gear anyway? Um, what do you think developers are really going to require then? And I'm thinking again, developers in these developing nations. What are they going to require in terms of the, a platform for themselves to self-host on? Yeah, well, and, and is there any limitations on which version of Windows they're going to need to run to be successful? Well, certainly, if you're targeting. Windows Home Basic, then developing on Windows Home Basic will make sense. Right. I think one of the things that's sort of different in the Windows 7 timeframe, it's kind of a little bit back to the way it was in Windows XP, is that the professional SKU becomes a SKU for many more people. Right. In the case of Windows Vista, it was really you know about the MINA enterprise managed world where I don't need these consumer features, but I have to have the management. In Windows XP, if you recall, a lot of people just bought Pro, whether they were trying to domain join or not, because that was the, you know, it was it was more comprehensive, had the things they needed, it was sort of at the right price. Um, and the idea with Windows um, 7 is to really make sure that the Pro is, is used in that sort of, well, I need more than is in home premium. What's the skew for me? I think it's going to be professional. Right. Uh, it does sound like professionals going to get used more. I feel like I'll, well, all my friends are running Vista Ultimate, but that's just to get away from any possibility that we're missing a feature. Yeah, I mean, Ultimate sort of served two purposes. One was it was the, okay, I want everything SKU. Yeah. But also, if you recall from my earlier comments about you having to choose between the consumer features or the business features, 
Yep. Ultimate was the place where things came back together for the first time. And now we think we can ser- solve or serve the needs of a lot of customers by having them buy professional. So you, so do you see that Ultimate's just not going to be as important a version this time around? I think it will be I think Pro will solve a lot of those a lot of those needs. Right. Remember, I mean Ultimate will still have some some of the more advanced features that some customers are still going to want. But by and large, if the thing you cared about was I want the business features and I want the um, consumer features. I got to buy Ultimate. That was the Windows set, Windows Vista story. Right. In Windows Seven, if I want the consumer features and I want some of the some of the uh, of, of, of the of the management features, Pro is going to solve my issues. You know, up in the in, in the case of Ultimate, you know, if you want BitLocker, yeah, you'll have to buy you'll have to buy Ultimate. If you want BitLocker to go, you'll have to buy Ultimate. If you want direct access, but it, uh, I do like and I think it, the big point for me here that you really clarify for me is this: this is a clean progression. Each time you move up a version, nothing is taken away; only things are added. Exactly, and I, I say the, the other approach that we had with Windows Vista was was not you know it was, I wasn't here for it, but it was they, it was a very thoughtful approach where they thought that, hey, let's, let's be very precise around what's our consumer offering, what's our business offering. Right. And, it's, and, and there's a lot of customers that love that. Yep. But I think overall, saying, yes, we have a consumer offering, yes, we have a business offering, but business is a superset. We anticipate just being, based on the feedback we've gotten, that just being a much more uh, attractive offer from, from Microsoft. And again, you did, we, we, do, we do still have a larger number of SKUs than we had in Windows XP, by one measure, but really, as, as you think about it in terms of what we think are going to be the ones that customers see, both on PCs and in retail, we think that's going to be Windows Home Premium and Windows Professional. So really, yeah, it's going to be two SKUs that most everyone sees. Yeah, and the other thing I think is pretty hot, so, so let me just say one other thing. You know, for netbooks, we want to make sure that for, for netbooks where in, most, in a lot of cases, we actually expect that netbooks will just run with Windows Home Premium. But in situations where the netbook is is is, is very is a very low cost netbook where price of all the parts matters a lot, right? We will offer Windows Starter in in developed markets as well. So if you want to buy a a, a low cost uh, netbook, you can get it with Starter, and Starter will ha- will have you know uh, it won't have Arrow graphics, it won't have um, uh, media center or DVD playback, and it'll only be able to run three applications simultaneously. But generally, when you see these little lightweight, n- the cool thing in when the cool thing in Windows Seven is the ability is a, is a new feature that we actually were we 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 have done a great job on with Windows Seven called Windows Anytime Upgrade. What Windows Anytime Upgrade lets you do essentially is to unlock functionality that wasn't available in the version of Windows that you have, in some sense, upgrade to the addition that's more right for you. If you buy a machine with home premium on it, and you say, wow, I wish I had domain join, in the past, it would have meant reinstalling the operating system. Right. In Windows 7, what it means is either going to a retailer or going to a, or going to a website and buying a key to unlock your system to convert it in place from Windows Home Premium to Windows Professional. Now, if you bought a netbook that happened to come with just Windows Starter, and you want that netbook to run Windows Home Premium, again, we think that's going to happen. You know, in some cases, where a machine came with Windows Windows Starter, but the customer wishes they had Windows Home Premium, 
in less than 10 minutes, we can get that customer running Windows. Uh, once they buy the key, get them running Windows Home Premium. Sure. I'm also thinking in terms of a really lightweight version of Windows because some of these netbooks are quite resource constrained. They're using solid, really small solid state drives or, or pure RAM sort of implementation. So anything that can reduce my memory footprint is something I'm interested in. Yeah, there's both memory footprint and there's disk footprint. So right. on the disk footprint perspective, we're feeling pretty good about that. Frankly, most of the volume of netbooks that we're seeing, we, when we initially looked at the netbook phenomenon, the the assumption was that most netbooks would be running with um with with flash with flash hard drives. It turns out that um, from a run rate perspective, most are actually running with rotational hard drives, which is not expected. But you know, you go you, you go look at at you know retail outlets. A lot of what you see there is machines one gigabyte Atom class processors with um, rotational hard drives. Well, and just because their drives are cheap. Yeah, and. You know, you can you can buy you know a, a nice netbook running Windows XP today. Um, you know, those machines run Windows Vista. I think we found is that in that with one gigabyte machines with slow processors that people are, tend to be have a, a bit of a better experience with Windows XP than Vista. We feel very good about the work we've done on Windows Seven. That the people should have a pretty good experience uh, running Windows Seven on a netbook now. They are what they are. You're not going to find that a netbook's going to be your high-end, you know, desktop replacement system because it's a it's, it, it has you know a limited sure. performance processor, less memory, typically a less sophisticated graphics card. Um, but you know, one of the things that we're finding is that the reason people like netbooks is that they're so small and yeah. relatively inexpensive. So you know, I have one and I use it alongside my regular laptop. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it would ever replace it, but, you know, it's small. I carry it with me. If I scratch it or drop it, I care less about it because I paid less for it. Right. Well, and it's certainly no quad-core laptop. It's not a tank. I think the key thing is people have to realize what it is and what it isn't. Right. Yeah, my wife has one and swears by it, but it's just because it fits in the purse. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have a purse, but, yeah, I get your idea. <laughs> <laughs> I pretty much use my cell phone for, you know, just... Browse, browsing and email and all that kind of stuff when I'm out and about. I, I like having a little, little, little form factor. Yeah, I tell you, I, I have a smartphone and I, and, I, and I love, I love my Windows Mobile phone. Um, but the other day, I have uh, a, a little um, netbook that I keep in, the, in a case that I actually recently bought for my portable DVD player. I have it with me because you know, I'm, on the weekends I'm driving around and I'm waiting for my kids at different at different practices and things that they're at. And I was trying to find the um, they call it in the state, but the, the Department of Licensing, we, we, we get new tabs for your license plates in, in Washington right. State. And I was sort of in a neighborhood that I'm not, you know, I, I was getting my car, I had, to get, I had to get it inspected before I had to go to the, the tab place. And a guy recommended that I go to a different tab place. So I was driving through this area that, nice neighborhood I'd never really spent any time in before. And I couldn't figure out where I was going. And, you know, I, I, I could have taken out my smartphone, which I sort of did, but. Um, I took out my my netbook and I plugged in my wire my my uh, broadband card and I did a search and I got a map right there on, on yep. my screen and you know I wasn't driving I was pulled over the side of the road but it was it was kind of cool to be able to have you know that that level of direction you know on a laptop that you know was was on in in, in a matter of seconds and I had my website very quickly and I was on my way so you know it it it's it, it, it's a portfolio of things that I have would I would I give up my smartphone for one no because I can't make a phone call on it uh, would I, would I Give up my laptop for it? No, but it's but it's a nice thing to have. 
it is an intersection point where there's there is a, a need that can be filled there for a right the right price point. Mike, we're uh, just about out of time here. So, is there any last minute uh, calls to action or anything that we missed that you want to mention? Resources or anything else? Yeah, I think you know very clearly one of the things we want to make sure we're doing on, on Internet Explorer Eight is that developers really are seeing the opportunities with accelerators, web slices, and um, um, visual search. And I think you know there's a theme that I think we're, we we sort of learn from our Windows Vista experience. Um, but also um, it gets reinforced with, with Internet Explorer 8 and Windows 7, is that, you know, you, we, we talked about where, where Internet Explorer 8 is in its life cycle. Right now it's actually not in beta. It's in its release candidate. The release candidate is available on Microsoft.com. The key thing for Internet Explorer 8 and for Windows 7, to, especially to our development community, is that we treat our betas, like release candidates, right? Hmm. And we treat our release candidates like final. So what that means is, if you're a website manager or you're a web dev, right now you should be looking at the functionality in Internet Explorer 8 like the product was done, making sure that your website's compatible with it. If you're using standards mode, great. If your website doesn't render properly in standards mode, think about putting it in standards mode. And if you're not going to do that, make sure that you tag your website as needing IE IE7 compatibility view. It's very easy to do. There's great, there's great guides to how to do that right up on, on MSDN. Um, and while you're there, look at technology like, like web slices and accelerators because it, it's really a great opportunity to both differentiate your site versus the competition, but also to drive more traffic back to your site using these investments. And most of them are pretty straightforward. You know, very, a very small number of lines of code to build a, a visual search provider, to build an accelerator, to build a web slice. And similarly, on the beta of Windows 7, I give the same advice. Go learn the product because there's some great opportunities to learn and to differentiate in a very deep way. Mike Nash, thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. It was really a good time. The time just flew by, so thank you. Yeah, it certainly did. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 